All right. Well, good evening to you. You can see on the screen, this is the systematic theology section. I've got a couple of the fellows passing out a handout. And this will be good for both weeks that I'm going to be sharing time with you. We're going to be taking a look at anthropology, the study of man. So I'll wait just a moment until they get finished. They're moving quickly as they can through the aisles. You never know what to do with numbers of handouts when you don't sign up for the classes in advance. So I asked Michael Laurie what worked last time, and he said, I believe 70 will be about right. We'll see in just a moment if he was right or not. Isaac, are we going to be short? Just one more. <laughs> well, Michael was pretty good if he got it within one. Okay, thank you, fellas, for doing that. <clears throat> in this semester of our equipping classes, we're going to be continuing in the series Systematic Theology. In this half of the spring, we're going to be covering the following topics uh, two weeks of anthropology, study of man. And then, uh, Nate, I think you have three weeks, right? For the doctrine of sin. Then a week with the doctrine of angels. And then uh, Michael Duncan is going to come on, and he's going to do a lengthier series on Christology, the doctrine of Christ. So those are the doctrines that we're hoping to cover during the 12 weeks of the spring of the equipping classes. Have you ever heard someone say this, and I hope it wouldn't be anyone from Timberlake, doctrine is dry. Give me application to daily living. Give me some helpful illustrations. Give me some how-to helps, like how to pray effectively, how to defeat the devil, how to have a successful marriage. Well, doctrine by itself can be dry. Paul said himself over in 1 Corinthians 13, I can have all the knowledge in the world. I can know my doctrines backwards and forwards, but if I don't have love, it's worth nothing. But at the same time, you certainly can't flip that and say, love is all I need. I don't need any strong teaching. That's just not the case. Uh, we're going to find that doctrine correct doctrine is really a backbone of Christian growth and living. Turn with me over to Ephesians 4. This will be familiar to you. The pastor uses it often. I'm beginning in verse 11. Ephesians 4 and verse 11. <clears throat> And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work. Note right there, that's what we're in here for. 
Paul says that all of the men who have been given to you as teachers are for the purpose of equipping you. Thus, we call these equipping classes. Now, the equipping is for the saints, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, that's what we're shooting for. We want to be complete and mature in Christ by knowing our doctrine. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. We want to have some backbone. We want to be solid in our doctrine so that we're not wavering. We're not tossed around by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. You see, God is a God of order. He's not a God of confusion. So we would expect him to have some system of truth well organized so that we can learn these doctrines correctly. In the New Testament, Paul is shown on a number of occasions directing churches to teach doctrine in an orderly fashion. In Titus 1.5, Paul says the following, This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order and to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. What was Titus to put in order? Well, let's take a look at Titus, and you can see a couple of verses here. In chapter 1, verse 9, and then in chapter 2, verse 1. Speaking of the elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And then speaking directly to Titus in 2.1, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So when Paul says, I left you in this church in order to put order into the church, he's talking about getting them squared away doctrinally. We also have an example of that in Colossians. In Colossians 2.5, Paul commends the church and he says the following, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Again, that word, I'm looking for your orderliness. I see it and I rejoice in that. Their orderliness consisted of what? Again, sound doctrine. Take a look here at these verses out of Colossians 2. These verses surround the one I just quoted. Speaking of Christ in verse 2, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's where our true doctrine will come from. But then notice what Paul has to add. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world or the elementary principles or elementary teachings that the world would offer and not according to Christ. So in both of those New Testament instances, Paul is saying that what I'm looking for in the church is orderliness. And orderliness equals 
sound doctrine. And so that's what we want to accomplish through our systematic theology. So if you take a look at your outline, you can see that a definition, a very simple one, would be the ordered exposition of Christian doctrine. We simply want to study what God has to say in his word in an ordered fashion. I like this quote that's here by Spurgeon. He has a way with words that very few preachers have ever had. He says that systematic theology is to the Bible what science is to nature. To suppose that all the other works of God are orderly and systematic, and the greater the work, the more perfect the system, and that the greatest of all his works, in which all his perfections are transcendently displayed, should have no plan or system, is altogether absurd. What Spurgeon is saying is, there is an orderliness that you would expect in all of God's dealings, and his greatest work here in this Spurgeon quote is the word. Because notice, that's where God's perfections are transcendently displayed. You find out about God in the word. And Spurgeon says, to think there's no plan for that, there is no such thing as systematic theology, well, that would be crazy to think that way. Maybe a simpler way to approach it would be another quote I have, not on your outline. This is from John Frame. He says the following, Systematic theology seeks to apply scripture by asking what the whole Bible teaches about any subject. For example, it examines what David had to say about the forgiveness of sins, and then compares that to what Jesus and Paul and John had to add to that. And then we try to understand what that all adds up to. Another way of putting it is to say that systematic theology seeks to determine what we today should believe about forgiveness or any other Bible topic. Seen that way, systematic theology is a highly practical discipline, not abstract nor arcane as it's often presented. So keep that in mind because I hope that's the way I'm going to be able to present this. We want to take a look at what the scriptures have to say in totality and then organize that in a proper way. So we'll be looking at many, many verses in the next two weeks, probably more next week than this week. But we're going to take a look at much scripture and try to organize it into these various topics. And our topic for the next two weeks is anthropology. So if you take a look there on your handout, a definition for anthropology, simply the doctrine of humanity. Well, a good opening question would be, why study anthropology? Why is it important? Well, take a look there at the Psalm 8-4 quote, and you'll find out we're not the first group to ever ask that. Back as far as David, he asked the following, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you would care for him? David, we're going to find out. In fact, go ahead and turn there to uh, Psalm 8. Because we're going to show that the context for the question is the verse right before that. 8.4, what is man that you're mindful of him? But notice in 
When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, on that basis, I now ask the question, what is man that you're mindful of him? So we can ask the question, is man worth studying? Is there enough there to get two weeks worth out of it? I believe so. There's a story that goes of an old homiletics professor who was lecturing his seminary fellows on the preparation of a sermon. And so the first week he got up and he said, Men, the most important part of any sermon is the introduction. If you don't get that right, you've already lost them, and all is lost. And then he proceeded to give a lecture illustrating the importance of the introduction to a sermon. Week two rolled around, and the professor got up and he said the following, Men, the most important part of any sermon is the body. The body is where all the truth is. You've got to get that truth correct. And then he spent the hour lecturing on the facets of the body of a sermon. Well, he gets up on week three, and he says, Men, the most important part of any sermon is the conclusion. You have to have something that wraps it all up for them. Well, this confused the students quite a bit, and so a number of them went up to him after class and said, Professor, how can all three of these be the most important part? And the the professor simply said, well, that's simple. The most important part of any sermon is the one that you're discussing on that given day. This quote that comes from Erickson that you see in your outline, that takes that kind of thought and applies it to our situation here with doctrine. Erickson says, in a sense, every doctrine is the most important doctrine when it's the one under discussion. The doctrine of scripture is the most important for epistemological purposes. The doctrine of Christ is the most important in terms of our redemption because without Christ's incarnation, life, death, and resurrection, there'd be no basis for salvation. The church is the most important doctrine relationally, since it treats the believer in Christian community. There are several reasons why the doctrine of man is especially important. So we want to take a look at a number of those now. Why is anthropology important? And as it's the one that we're facing for two weeks, let's see if we can see that indeed the one under study would be the most important one. Notice there, number one, anthropology answers ultimate questions like, who am I? Why am I here? Why am I able to reason and feel? What's the purpose of my life? Where am I headed? Well, the scriptures answer those questions for us. I'll tackle just a couple for time, but the question of what's the purpose of my life Well, the Bible gives us the very clear purpose for man's life. 1 Corinthians 10.13, I think you can probably finish this for me. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the purpose of our life. Psalm 150 verse 6 says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. 
praising him, giving glory to him. That is the purpose of man. The Bible has the answers for ultimate questions on anthropology. How about the question, where am I headed? Well, the Bible has the answer to that as well. Hebrews 9.27, for it is appointed unto man once to do what? To die, and after that, the judgment. The Gospel of John gives even more information on that, taking up from the Hebrews portion, a judgment's to come. Jesus separates that and shows us that there's two possible destinations. And he has given him authority to execute judgment. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment or condemnation. A second point. Anthropology teaches that man is unique. Louis Burkhoff says man is represented as standing at the apex of all the created order. He's crowned as a king of the lower creation and is given dominion over all the inferior creatures. Let's look at that Psalm 8 passage again. Maybe you still have your Bibles open to that. Let's look now at the verses that follow the question in verse 4. And we get a little glimpse as to how man is unique. Chapter 8, verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. A third point that anthropology helps us with is to understand our relationship to God. From this, we learn how man is to act and how he's to be related to God. We can learn what God thinks of and expects from man. It explains the creator-creature relationship. There's, great, there's a great illustration that's twice in Isaiah that shows clearly what the scripture presents as a creator-creature relationship. Take a look at the screen with Isaiah 45.9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Obviously a rhetorical question. The clay never responds back like that. Also Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. And so we learn a correct relationship of man to God. Fourthly, anthropology addresses specific current cultural issues like abortion, homosexuality, environmentalism. Much of the world today is confused about these topics because the world operates from a faulty view of God and man. 
And anthropology from God's perspective instructs us truthfully on these matters. A biblical anthropology will guide us in applying a Christian worldview in matters that face us. I actually won't be covering much of that. That's always an interesting one, but of course we just had an entire semester of equipping classes to do that very thing. Uh, The book Strange New World, as we went through that over a period of 10 to 12 weeks, we were discussing a lot of the current issues. And then number five, anthropology refutes false philosophies about the view of man. Secular naturalism would assert that there is no God and the universe is only material. Man is just an accidental collection of molecules that randomly evolved from lower life forms with no intentional design. He has no real value or eternal significance. He's just a higher form of animal. Humanity itself will someday disappear, evolving into a higher life form. That's the secular view. What does scripture have to say about that? I'll just give you a little sampling. Jeremiah 31.3 Thus says the Lord, I have loved you with an everlasting love. John chapter 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That's always a remarkable statement to me. As the Father loves the Son, so the Son loves his people. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ Jesus. And then look at your screen, 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Does that sound like we're a bunch of irrelevant molecules? Hardly. The scriptural view of man elevates man, not by his own good or worth, but for the fact that God thinks so much of him. So the first topic we're going to handle, and it'll be the only one tonight, that was a long intro, but I felt like I wanted to do that, one, because we had been away from systematic theology for an entire semester and a summer, so it's been about nine months, so I just wanted to review a little bit what systematic theology's value is and then what anthropology's value is. And now we'll start uh, tackling individual topics within that. And the one we're going to cover tonight is a very important one, man as the image of God. What does it mean to be in the image of God? Go back with me now all the way to Genesis, and let's take a look at chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. 126. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, 
and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That very first line is an important one. You'll notice I have a quote here again from John Frame. He says, in our likeness and after our, excuse me, in our image and after our likeness, they're more or less synonyms. Now, there are some men who would make a distinction between the two, but I noticed most of the systematic theology authors agreed with this, that they're more or less just synonyms here. The passage makes no reference to nuanced differences between these terms, but pairs them to magnify the greatness of this particular creative act. In other words, by saying it twice in a slightly different way, God wants us to see this importance. This is a big thing that man was made in the image of God. There's a number of different views as far as what the image of God constitutes. I've got three of them here. First of all, the substantive view. This view says that the image of God is inherent to the structure of man. It is a characteristic within the makeup of man. The image is part of man, not just something he does. It resides in man whether or not he recognizes God's existence or his work. There are some who hold then to what's called a functional view. The image of God is something humans do such as ruling and subduing the earth. It's a function he performs. He's equipped by God to exercise great power and control over the physical world. And then there's the relational view. The image of God is to be thought of as the experiencing of a relationship. Man's having been endowed with the capacity of being spoken to and the ability to respond is the formal image. The image is not something man is or does. Rather, the image is related to the fact that God willed into existence a being that, like himself, can be a partner. Man is capable of relationship. Well, you can see the quote just below these from John MacArthur. And I like this. I like because of how he explains the interrelationship. But he says the best view is that the image of God is substantive or structural to man. He says that function and relationship, then, are the consequences of man being the image of God structurally. In other words, since man is the image of God, he's able to exercise dominion and experience relationships. According to the Genesis 1 passage that we already read, man... First of all, it's talked about as being made in his image, and then he is tasked with ruling and subduing the earth and being in relationship. So function and relationship are the natural result of being the image. 
And so I think that is the view that would be uh, best in that case. Wayne Grudem adds a little bit here to throw the door wide open. He says that every way in which man is like God is part of his being in the image and likeness of God. The image itself, then, is a set of qualities that are required for right relationship and function to take place. These are qualities of God called attributes, and they are mentioned as communicable attributes. I think Michael Duncan had that in one of his lessons a long time ago. Uh, communicable as opposed to those that are non-communicable, like omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, immutability, so forth. But all the communicable attributes, these are what constitute the image of God. So what are some of these characteristics? I'll take a look at here, uh, the list with me. One, man has a volition. Man has a will, and he has the ability to select between various choices. He can discern right from wrong. This is what separates man from the animals. Pastor Farrell's message a week ago gave a great illustration of volition. Do you remember his message last week? We had Jesus going to visit Martha, Mary, and Lazarus to have a dinner. Mary is camped out at his feet listening to the word. Martha's running around scurrying, getting dinner ready. Martha gets upset She turns to the Lord and said, don't you care that I'm doing all the work? And the Lord says to Martha, Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken from her. Mary exhibited volition. She had a will. She had a choice to make. She could have worked with Martha, or she could have sat at the Lord's feet, and she chose what Christ calls the good portion. Man has an intellect. Man has a rational mind. He's aware of himself, his environment, others, and God. He can think critically and logically. He possesses memory, imagination, creativity, and language skills. We have a great example of this right off the beginning in the scriptures. Look at Genesis chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 19. Think here of those last two terms that I quoted, creativity and language skills. Look at Adam here at the very beginning. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Wow. What creativity to come up with all the different words that would single out every different creature and then have the language skill to be able to assign a verbal word to that animal or beast. That shows the intellect of man. Man is an emotional being. Man can experience a wide range of emotions and feelings, such as fear, anger, guilt, anxiety, and happiness. Quoted often in the Psalms, and then also our Lord uses it in the Sermon on the Mount. 
is the phrase, blessed is the man. Or in other words, happy is the man. Men are capable of having joy. They are emotional beings. Man's relational. Man is equipped to participate in relationships with God and with other people. Notice here in Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Man needed relationship with others. God knew this and provided for him a mate in Eve. The greatest commandments are to love God and to love others. Only persons can give and receive love. You know this passage well, Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Man can be in relationships with God and other men. And then functionally, man has what he needs to rule, fill, and subdue the earth on behalf of God's glory. Males and females have bodies able to reproduce, and they're able to interact in their physical environment. Humanity possesses the ingenuity to implement a successful strategy for the earth. So those are some of the characteristics. Let's take a look next at what are some of those implications then? We said that we wanted to bring out this doctrine, we wanted to bring out these verses, but we wanted to see what that would mean for us today as well. So let's do that under the idea of some implications. First of all, the implication is that the image is affirmed for all persons, male and female alike. We already read this once, but uh, on the screen now is Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then the phrase male and female, he created them. This would answer any question regarding a superior sex or a superior race or a superior nationality. There's only one race, the human race, and all equally share the image of God. Because every human's either male or female, right? Okay, notwithstanding what you hear today, everyone is male or female. And so all bear the image of God. It's affirmed for each. Colossians 3, 10 and 11 says this, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here's that image of its creator. But now notice what takes place here. Now there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so we find that the image is affirmed for all persons. Now, almost as a little bit of a sidetrack, not too much, but a little bit, we do want to address the question, how about after the fall? Did man lose the image of God through the fall? And the answer is no, but it has certainly been tarnished or marred 
Since man has sinned, he is certainly not as fully like God as he was before. His moral purity has been lost, and his sinful character certainly does not reflect God's glory. His intellect is corrupted by falsehood and misunderstanding. His speech no longer continually glorifies God. His relationships are often uh, measured by selfishness rather than love. Though man is still in the image of God, parts of that image have been distorted and lost in every aspect of life. We are less fully like God than we were before the entrance of sin. But I do want to make the point that notwithstanding, we've not lost the image of God entirely. Take a look at some references here. Genesis 5. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. The image of God was passed down through uh, natural uh, procreation. And he named him Seth. Look here at Genesis 9. This is definitely post-fall. This is post-flood. And in Genesis 9, 6, we have, Whosoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because God made man in his own image. Post-flood men are still made in the image of God. James 3, 9 to give a New Testament reference to it. With it, speaking of the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. These things ought not to be so. So even into the New Testament, centuries after the fall, James says that men are made in the likeness of God. All right, so we're not exactly what we ought to be, but we do have two promising things. One is that when we're saved, we enter a process known as progressive sanctification, and we begin to build that image back to what it was. We don't achieve it on earth, but we begin to build that back. It's encouraging to turn to the New Testament and to see that our redemption means that we can during this life, grow progressively in likeness to God. Here are some references for that. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Working our way back toward that. That's the pattern of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That really speaks of progressive sanctification. From one degree of glory to another. Ephesians chapter 4. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then, of course, at Christ's return, complete restoration is achieved. The amazing promise of the New Testament is just as we have been like Adam, subject to death and sin, we shall also be like Christ, morally pure, never facing death again. 
You've got references there, which are now on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Of course, 1 Corinthians 15 is that great resurrection chapter, and so that's the context for this. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. The image will be completely restored because we shall see him as he is. Psalm seventeen fifteen, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And so we have that blessing and assurance. More implications. The image of God explains mankind's need to live in relationship with others. God in three persons has enjoyed perfect personal communion with one another for all eternity. Another implication is that we belong to God since we bear his image. Take a look at Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. I know you probably didn't memorize it that way. You did out of the King James probably, but newer translations, he made us and we are his. We belong to him. And so that's an implication. And a very important one is this next one. We should pattern ourselves then after Jesus, who's the complete revelation of, of what the image of God is. Uh, Turn, if you would, over to uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1. Hebrews chapter 1. The writer there says... He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is fully God. He's the exact representation of God. And therefore, he should be the one that we look to as we bear his image. We find over in uh, John that Philip asks the Lord a question or actually makes a statement, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Over in Colossians 1, it says that he is the image of the invisible God. And it goes on to say a few verses later, And the fullness, and in him, all the fullness of God dwells. And so he should be our pattern. There's a goodness in learning and working. The exercise of dominion and work was part of God's original intention for man. It preceded the fall. Take a look at Genesis 2.15. We find there that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden 
And look what he put him there for. To work it and to keep it. Work is a good thing. It is not a bad thing. And work is not a curse that occurred because of the fall. Work predates it. And it's something that we should uh, take advantage of and should actually enjoy. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) And, of course, we find throughout the Proverbs that men are commended when they're hard workers and they're condemned or called out when they're sluggards. This is something that we should be proud of, and it has to do with bearing the image of God. And then there's a dignity to being human. We shouldn't be disdainful of any human being. They're all something beautiful, even though they are distortions of what God originally intended man to be. It means that people of every race and ethnicity deserve equal dignity and rights. It means that the elderly, the seriously ill, the mentally disabled, and children yet unborn deserve full protection and honor as human beings. The likeness to the creator is there in each. John Murray had a couple of points to add to this idea of dignity in the human being. He says the following. One point is this. He calls it the unique engagement of God's counsel. The formula is not that of simple fiat, as in the case of light in Genesis 1-3. In other words, God just doesn't verbalize and command uh, as he did with light. Nor is it that command of reference to existing entities like plants, fish, or animals later in Genesis 1. The terms let us make indicate that there is unique engagement of divine thought and counsel and bespeak the fact that something correspondingly unique is about to take place. Secondly, in the term in our image, the animals were made according to their kinds, that is, a pattern prescribed by God. But man is made after the pattern of God himself. God is the pattern for the creation of man. No wonder David proclaimed over in Psalm 139.14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. G. Campbell Morgan said of the 139th Psalm, The conception of intimate personal relation between God and man is perhaps more remarkably and forcibly dealt with in this psalm than in any other in the whole collection of psalms. I encourage you to read the 139th Psalm this week. Be a good bridge between this and next week's lesson. Because what you'll find is it will encourage your heart to read of the deep interest that the Lord of the universe has for mankind. So next week we're going to continue our study. And you've got the outline, so bring that back if you would. Uh, And you can see the topics, but I'll just read them off quickly. We're going to take a look at the origin of man, human constitution, or how is man made up, the origin of the soul, and then also the concept of personhood. So we'll cover a few more topics than we did this time with just the one.
But the image of God is such a great one to begin with. And uh, I hope that uh, uh, that's a blessing to you as you consider that. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you for the lesson time tonight. And I thank you for the obvious organization that you have in your word. And I thank you that men before us have put together systematic approaches so that we can really learn doctrine. And by learning it, no longer be tossed to and fro as children. I thank you for those uh, attending tonight for their good attention. I thank you for Mark and Rich and their contributions in the classes they're teaching as well. Pray that you'd give us safety now as we leave, as we go to our homes. We pray for your blessings. We pray for your protection as we work through this next week. And we look forward again then to gathering next Sunday to worship you. We thank you for this and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.